in a dance all day. Hey, this is Jack Hughes. We were cool on crazy. When I, you, and everyone we knew. And you're listening to Play That Rock and Roll. Sharing what was true, I said. Dance all day long. Classic Rock 103.7 WHTT. I hate this station. They always make promises they can't deliver. Playing the greatest rock and roll hits of all time. We built this city. See? Chris, turn that off. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joseph K. And like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. That clip we opened with just now... That has got to be one of Family Guy's most brutal hits on a classic rock artist ever. (laughs) I mean, it's absolutely savage. And it speaks to both the uh, masturbatory way that classic rock radio advertises itself and also the negative connotation that surrounds this band. Hopefully, what I can do today is push back on that. If... You're hoping that I'm going to spend an hour dunking on Starship? You're going to be disappointed. That's not what this show is going to be. I like Starship. Now, there is definitely things to criticize, and we will, but there's more to the Starship story than we built this city, and we're going to cover as much as I can. As this is the third of our three-part series that looks back at the Jefferson Airplane family tree, including... The Jefferson Airplane, the Jefferson Starship, and today's subject, Starship. Now, we'll talk about Starship in the first two segments of this show, because the discography of Starship is not actually all that big. And I'm going to save the last segment of the podcast to finish up our discussion about Marty Ballin's solo career. We talked about Marty Ballin's solo records in the Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Starship episodes, but he has a lot of solo records, so we're going to talk about the post-2000 era for Marty Ballin today. Hopefully, that will keep any Jefferson Airplane fans who don't like Starship listening. Sit tight, we'll get through the Starship stuff, and then I'll reward you by talking about Marty Ballin. How's that sound? Fair enough? (laughs) Okay, so just a quick refresher. Starship's original lineup is primarily Mickey Thomas, Grace Slick, guitarist Craig Chicaso, and producer Peter Wolf. There are plenty of other band members, most of which started in the Jefferson Starship lineup, but in that original run of Starship from 85 to 89, guys like Pete Sears, David Freiberg and Donnie Baldwin seemingly left every year. Someone left one year after the other. And none of them play with Mickey today. So we're going to mostly focus on the four I mentioned. For those who don't know, Starship was a huge commercial success. Way bigger hits than the Jefferson Airplane or the Jefferson Starship ever had. And that's because this band came out of the gates chasing radio success. And I think that's a good thing, because the music and the hits that this band produced 
are very accessible and a lot of fun. It's upbeat music, very pop-friendly. But the flip side to this, the side you can be critical about, is that this strategy of chasing radio hits is deeply cynical. Now, the Starship was founded after Paul Kantner left the Jefferson Starship in 1984. Mickey Thomas remained in the band because now with Paul gone, he could lead the band in a direction that would chase radio success. And Mickey wanted to be that guy. He wanted to be an MTV star. Gray Slick, on the other hand, remained in the band because she wanted to get paid. (laughs) She agreed with Mickey's vision for the band, and that's largely because she saw dollar signs in it. She felt that she was getting close to the end of her career, and she wanted a couple more big paydays before she would totally retire. Okay, let's rewind a little bit and talk about Mickey Thomas before Starship. So Mickey Thomas originally comes from the Elvin Bishop group. He was the vocalist on five albums from the Elvin Bishop group that were released between 1974 and 1977. The biggest hit from the group in that era is this song called Fooled Around and Fell in Love. That was released in 1975. You still hear that on the radio occasionally today. And that's Mickey on lead vocals. Now, I'm not going to talk about the Elvin Bishop group anymore because, frankly, they are a subject that is just too big to condense in this segment. Their story deserves an episode of their own, and hopefully I will get to that. But suffice to say, Mickey's success with the Elvin Bishop group is what caught the attention of the Jefferson Starship when they started looking for a new vocalist after Marty Ballin had left the band in the late 70s. Mickey had also released a solo album in 1976 called As Long As You Love Me. This is a very 70s record, okay? (laughs) It has a cover of George Clinton's Dance It Off on there. So we're coming right up to the line of disco, almost. And what's really crazy, and what might have been another thing to attract the attention of Jefferson Starship, is that it includes a cover of Somebody to Love by the Jefferson Airplane. So, how funny is that? So let's take a listen to Mickey Thomas performing Somebody to Love before he ever was approached to join the Jefferson Starship. That's pretty cool. Not a bad version. Mickey Thomas had another solo album that was released in August 1981. This one was called Alive Alone. At this point, he was a part of Jefferson Starship. They didn't have any problems with him continuing a bit of a solo career. I will say it's a pretty good album. Lots of upbeat music, but ultimately no big hit single. Let's listen to a clip from a song called Too Much Drama. Too much drama, 
That should give you an idea of what Mickey was producing around this time. And I, I picked this song because I think it's a, an appropriate title for the band that he was a part of. <laughs> and what uh, we're going to get into as this episode goes on. A few years later, Grace partnered with producer Peter Wolf for her software album in 1984. I only mention this because Peter Wolf would then become Starship's producer because of that connection with Grace. So, Paul Kantner quits the band in late 1984, sues Grace and Mickey, and that lawsuit takes all the way until March 1985. It was extremely contentious, and it resolved with Grace having ownership of the band, but not being able to use the words Jefferson or Airplane in the band name. Grace was fine with that because Starship or The Starship, is how a lot of people referred to Jefferson Starship in the first place. So she and Mickey decided to just push forward as Starship. Now, despite this extremely contentious legal battle between the camps, Grace and Paul would eventually reconcile, before the end of the decade, actually. But the same could not be said of Paul and Mickey. In fact... Paul and Mickey never reconciled, and they obviously did not perform together again after Paul had left the band. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Starship's first album is called Knee Deep in the Hoopla, and that was released in September 1985. All but one song came from outside songwriters. A track called Private Room was written by Mickey and Craig. The phrase Knee Deep in the Hoopla comes from the lyrics of the band's first single, which we all know as We Built This City. That was not just their first single, but it was also their first number one hit single. Oh, 
Despite the huge success this song had, when it was released, in the years since, it has become very much maligned. Let me just give you a, a brief list of some of the various dishonors this song has been awarded with. In 2004, VH1 and Blender Magazine made it number one on their 50 Most Awesomely Bad Songs Ever list. In 2011, Rolling Stone called it the worst song of the 80s. And in 2016, GQ called it, quote, the worst song of all time. So I'm here to say, fuck all that. I mean, at this point, dunking on We Built This City is like baby's first music criticism. It's a fun song. And much like Eye of the Tiger, Everybody Have Fun, or The Final Countdown, or other songs like those, it's just being used as a lazy punching bag for music critics who need to generate content. Criticism of that song, to that degree, only really makes sense if you think Starship is the same band as Jefferson Airplane. And if you do, you're a moron. <laughs> okay? Sorry. Or at the very least, you're wrong. These are completely different bands with completely different goals. you got to stop comparing Starship to the Jefferson Airplane scene. Okay? Starship is arena rock. It's 80s pop rock. Okay? Its contemporaries are bands like Journey, Huey Lewis, Ario Speedwagon, Toto... And if you look at the hits of those bands, We Built This City fits right in with those hits, okay? And they, as a band, fit right in with those genres and those bands. And if you're telling me that I might be right, but you don't like any of that, so it doesn't make it good, well, with all due respect, but fuck off. <laughs> because I like those genres and those bands, and I like Starship. And I like this song. And I'm just so fed up with the fans of the Jefferson Airplane era bitching and moaning that, for whatever reason, Starship wasn't making the same kind of music that Jefferson Airplane made 20 years before. You know? You have to criticize them or celebrate them for what they are not what you wish they were. You know what I mean? And I think that's really the genesis of all the hate that Starship gets. Longtime fans of the Jefferson Airplane being mad that the Starship didn't continue that tradition of music. It's hard to believe that Grace Slick and all those people were once in a band as cool as Jefferson Airplane. And then you see they built that city on rock and roll, and it's like, oh my god, you're tearing it down with your lame-ass song. All that said, if you want to hear something truly funny about We Built This City, go on YouTube and look up a video called We Built Sioux City. Sioux City's a fantastic community. It's a welcoming community. It's got a can-do attitude. It's got a great work ethic. But what makes Sioux City a great place is the way it was built. We Built Sioux City! Sioux City, this is a long forgotten viral clip. It's absolutely ancient. <laughs> but I remember it 
getting the rounds back when I was in college. I think because at the time we all thought it was very cringy, but if you look at it now, it, it is still cringy, but it's also quite wholesome and, you know, funny in its own right. So uh, check out that and cool your jets about We Built This City. You know what I mean? It's not a big deal. The second single from Knee Deep in the Hoopla was a song called Sarah, and that also hit number one on the Billboard charts. Sarah, Sarah, no time is a good time Sarah. See, another reason I don't really get the backlash to We Built This City is because this is the song that sucks on the album. It's a very lame 80s ballad. But there are many of those that I like. Uh, this is just not one of them. This is one of those songs that was absolutely destined for, like, late-night time-life compilation CD commercials. You know, right alongside Rosanna by Toto and Amanda by Boston. <laughs> I will say the album cuts here are surprisingly good. In fact, I think this is a fairly decent 80s we'll call it corporate rock type of album. Again, corporate rock is shorthand for arena rock meant for a pop audience. I know it's not a respectful term, but sorry, it works. And that's what this band largely was, and there's plenty of great corporate rock music. Knee Deep in the Hoopla, I think, is a good example of that. Okay, now there's two tracks here I want to discuss. The first is called Rock Myself to Sleep. So this song was written by two songwriters from Katrina and the Waves, who also wrote the biggest hit for that group, Walking on Sunshine. This song was given to not just Starship, but also another band called April Wine in 1985. Now, April Wine is a Canadian corporate rock band. I would say the closest comp is Foreigner. They're most famous for their hit, Just Between You and Me, uh, which is definitely another one of those songs that you would find on a Time Life compilation CD. But their version of Rock Myself to Sleep was put on the Fright Night soundtrack. So if there's any 80s horror movie fans watching, you might be familiar with that and you might like their version. Katrina the Waves also released a version, but that was later in 1989. And I would say of all of the different versions of this song that are out there, I think Grace's version here on the Starship record is probably the best because this is an extremely silly song, right? But to me, the humor only really works if it's a woman who's singing it and it's also a woman who's kind of in on the joke. If you watch the music video for April Wine doing this song, they're all guys and they really seem to think that this song makes them look cool or they're trying to present themselves as cool. I mean, they play totally straight. And honestly, that lands a little flat because the lyrics here are just too goofy. Grace has the right tone for this song. And if you see her play the song live during one of their live performances, uh, you'll kind of see her humor coming through a little bit. Now, they play this song on the tour for this record, but they don't play it anymore. And I think it's because Mickey does not really like the song. And I say that because Grace left Starship at the end of the 80s, and we'll talk about that a little later. And in the years since, there have been a few women 
to take over her role in Starship. The longest tenured of those women is Stephanie Calvert, and she took over Grace's role in the band from 2006 to late last year, 2021. And she told me that she asked Mickey several times to let her play this song during their shows, but he always declined. Oh, and on a related note, my next episode is going to be an interview with Stephanie Calvert. <laughs> okay, so that's my, my cutesy way of announcing that news. Stephanie is going to join us and talk about her 15-year tenure with the band. So that will actually serve as the conclusion to our Jefferson Airplane Family Tree series here. Okay, and then real quick, the last song from Knee Deep in the Hoopla I just have to mention is called... Hearts of the World Will Understand. This is another Grace Slick song. This is some awesome 80s power pop. And it truly has been lost to time, which is a shame because this song is an absolute banger. Here, take a listen. Between the two of us, we can't decide just where the answer Starship's second album is called No Protection, and it was released in July 1987. Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now was the lead-off single, and it was the band's third number one hit, and it was the most successful out of the three. This means that Starship had three number one hit singles in the first year and a half of its existence, which is pretty wild. That's coming out of the gates extremely strong. I think this is one of the great rock duets of the 80s. It's right up there with Stop Dragging My Heart Around and Take Me Home Tonight, as far as I'm concerned. And I will say I'm sad to see that in the years since, Grace has basically disavowed the song. You can find clips of her calling it horseshit and not being very proud of it. But she doesn't miss singing for Starship. We built this city on rock and roll. We built this city on rock and roll and I thought it was awful. I don't like nothing's gonna stop us now because I can stop you with a big truck. Uh, uh, we're going to be together forever. Oh, come on, please. In the book, Got a Revolution, The Turbulent Flight of Jefferson Airplane, Grace talks about this song, and she says, quote, I was damn near 50, and I'm singing Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. I know goddamn well how fast a relationship can come apart. It's distracting and disconcerting to me to be singing lyrics I don't believe. Grace might have been on board to have outside songwriters at first, but by this point, she was not liking that aspect of the band. Grace is a songwriter, and having her songwriting not be utilized by this new lineup, I think was not something she appreciated. And she did not like singing some of the rather airheaded lyrics that came from professional songwriters. Tensions in the band were starting to rise again, too, 
if you listen to these two albums back to back, Knee Deep in the Hoopla and this one, you'll notice that Grace's role is reduced a bit. And that's not a positive. I think Starship's at their best if Mickey and Grace have equal time. So I will say, this album I don't think is as good as the previous one. But there are some good tracks here. I like their duet on a song called Beat Patrol. That's the album opener, and that's a lot of fun. And another lost gem is Grace's track, Babylon. Take a listen to this song. interesting track. You don't hear stuff like that a whole lot. I like that song. I, I I get a kick out of it. And I think late era Grace really delivered some gems here at the end. I know she gets a bad rep. And I think that's why the criticism of Starship bugs me so much. Grace is doing some of her best singing, okay? Again, she's not obviously on board with a lot of the lyrics, but she didn't lose a step vocally. And some of the 80s pop production is a lot of fun. But in any case, it wasn't enough to keep her happy. And Grace Slick would leave Starship right at the end of the tour to promote No Protection. In her book, Somebody to Love, Grace says that she was supposed to record a duet with Mickey on a song called Set the Night to Music. But he recorded it solo before she arrived to the studio. Now, she did record some vocals for the track, because I've listened to it, and she is on it, but I guess it wasn't recorded in the way that it was originally designed to be for the two of them. And I don't think Grace had any particularly strong feelings about the song itself. It was more about Mickey recording it in the way he did without talking to her first, and I think this was just one more little power play from Mickey, who was slowly but surely trying to take over the band himself, and that ultimately served as the last straw for Grace, okay? Because at this point of the run, Grace was pretty unhappy with where she was in the band. She did not like the music she was singing. She was exhausted by the tour schedule. You can find clips of her on YouTube talking about how she loves performing on stage, but every other aspect of a tour is pretty grueling for her. Are you going to tour? Yes, lots of touring. I'm not especially looking forward to that. Why? It's long and in, being on the stage is fun. The other 22 hours are real boring. Mostly you're waiting in a hotel room, waiting in an airport, waiting on a bus, waiting to go on stage, and uh, it's a little tedious. Going back to the point about the song, she was tired of the tug of war with Mickey. You know, those two had battled Paul Kantner for like a year, and they were side by side for that. But once that battle was over, then the tug of war started between them. And I think at this point, she had spent so much of her time in a band that was always sort of fighting each other that she was tired of it. And had no more patience for it, okay? And you gotta remember, she saw this lineup, this whole Starship project, as cashing out before retirement. She wanted to make big money with some big hits. And she's been in the music business long enough at this point to recognize that three number one hit singles, right out of the gates, is impossible to sustain. 
And she was probably smart enough to identify that the band's heyday was all but over. This was a project that was not going to have sustained pop success. So it was time for her to go. Now, given that so many of the people we've talked about in the Jefferson family tree performed for years and decades after this, you're probably wondering, what is all this talk about retirement? Grace retired for real just a year later, and she did largely because she was deeply insecure about her age, which wasn't even that old. But at the time, she didn't feel good about being the oldest one in the band, and when they scored the number one hit with Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, she was 47 years old, and she set a record for being the oldest woman to ever have a number one hit single. I think she beat Tina Turner's record as Tina was like 45 when she did What's Love Got to Do With It. And it would take all the way up until Cher did Believe to beat Grace's record. Now this is really important, but it might be a factor in what made her so insecure about how old she was at this point of her career. Now, after she leaves the Starship in late 1988, she would rejoin the Jefferson Airplane. Paul Kantner and Marty Ballin and the guys in Hot Tuna for their 1989 reunion album and tour. Now, that was not a cash-out gig. <laughs> she probably did not make much money from that project at all because there wasn't a lot of attention around it. That one, I think she did for some personal closure with all her original bandmates from, you know, that 60s heyday. And then she retired for real. And she has, all this time, refused countless offers to make albums or show up on stage. And I'm going to play a clip from the VH1 Behind the Music episode about Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, which is what they end the show on. This is Grace's last comment. It's about how she feels regarding older rock stars. Getting up and singing uh, songs that you sang 30 years ago during what you thought was a revolution is kind of pathetic. People really don't like it when I say that. I don't like old people on a rock and roll stage. I think they look pathetic, me included. I certainly disagree with that comment. You might disagree too, but that is something she truly believes. Now, when we talked about Jefferson Starship, we talked about the one time Grace did make an appearance on stage with them. But even that wasn't really a proper performance. Needless to say, she never performed with Mickey again, and she never toured again. She spends her days mostly painting now, but she does keep in contact with the Jefferson Starship as she helped Kathy Richardson write a song off that band's new album. And when I interviewed Stephanie Calvert, Stephanie told me that despite some legal battles that Mickey and Grace had in the early 90s, Mickey has actually maintained a very healthy professional relationship with Grace in the years that followed and still does today. So that's nice to know. And I also think this is a nice point to take a break. So now we're going to look at some recent headlines in the world of classic rock. This is a segment I call Yesterday's News. Okay, 
Okay, not quite yesterday's news, but I have my classic rock newspaper here in front of me, and I have two stories I want to talk about very briefly. The first, in the obituaries section, Meatloaf dies at age 74. I want to talk about this just for a moment, because since he's passed away, there have been all sorts of wild inflammatory headlines that have been published about his passing. And I think that is just real unfortunate. So I'm going to give you my best understanding of the circumstances around his death, and hopefully that will clear up some of the misinformation and confusion over what happened here. Okay? Meatloaf reportedly caught COVID-19 shortly before his death. Now, Meat had several serious ongoing health issues, and his vaccination status about COVID-19 was, and I believe still is, unknown. Now, Meatloaf's daughter, Pearl, who's also Scott Ian from Anthrax's wife, posted on Instagram on January 7th that several of her friends and family had recently tested positive for COVID-19, saying, quote, thank their respect for science that they're all vaxxed. Otherwise, they'd be way worse. So there's no official word on Meat's vaccine status, so she could potentially be referring to him here. Now, I bring all this up because the headlines I'm referring to are calling Meat an anti-vaxxer and a COVID denier and all this crap that doesn't necessarily apply, okay? Meat was absolutely anti-lockdown and anti-mask mandate, but he wasn't necessarily anti-vax. And that's my only point. We don't know for sure. Now, that said, it is certainly possible that he was unvaccinated, died from COVID, and said, quote, if I die, I die, but I'm not going to be controlled in one of his final interviews. And if that's the case, well, that's sad, but it's not necessarily the case. And I guess my broader point is about how headlines leave out critical information. We live in a world of clickbait, and that sucks because, yes, Meat had some opinions that might make you think he was anti-vax. We don't actually know because he didn't actually speak to that issue when he was still alive. And he very well could have been vaccinated when he passed away because, again, he had a lot of ongoing health issues prior to catching COVID. That's my report on the news of his passing. If you want to hear my stories of seeing Meatloaf in concert in 2011 or seeing him play baseball at the Celebrity All-Star Game in 2002, you should check out my appearance on the Vintage Rock Pod. Vintage Rock Pod put out a Meatloaf tribute episode, and the host of that show, Paul, is a friend of this show, and he invited me on to share my story, and uh, we talked about it. It was great. I will post a link to that show in the description of this podcast. And while I'm at it, thank you to Paul for having me on as a guest on that show. I always love joining him there. Vintage Rock Pod, that's a great podcast for any classic rock fans. Highly recommend it. And the next page of my classic rock newspaper, Neil Young pulls music from Spotify over Joe Rogan's vaccine misinformation. Oh, yeah, we're going to go there. <laughs> I can hear so many of you signing off, but I would say... Hold on just a moment. Like with Meatloaf, I'm not going to dive into the politics of this, okay? I'm just going to clear up some 
misinformation and some misunderstanding around this story, given what I know about Neil Young. So let's just deal with some facts here real quick. Joe Rogan signed a $100 million deal with Spotify in May 2020. And since we've been in this pandemic, he has repeatedly hosted discussions with vaccine skeptics, and he himself is unvaccinated against COVID-19. Now, on December 31st, 2021, Rogan posted a particularly egregious interview with a vaccine skeptic, which resulted in some 270 doctors, physicians, and science educators posting an open letter asking for Spotify to stop allowing Rogan's show to spread baseless claims about COVID-19 and the vaccines. Now, this must have got in front of Neil at some point, because on January 24th, Neil posted a letter to his website demanding that Spotify remove all of his music from their platform, saying, quote, I want you to let Spotify know immediately today that I want all my music off their platform. They can have Rogan or Young, not both. Two days later, on January 26th, Spotify pulled Neil's music. And as a result, there was a lot of laughter and celebration in right-wing circles on social media, including, oddly, disturbed frontman David Draymond. Draymond and the others all seemed to think that Neil assumed Spotify was going to back down and censor Joe Rogan. And I don't know how to explain it, except they just don't get it. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is classic Neil. And if you know, you know, but let, let's get into it. Now, on January 27th, Neil posted on his website, I sincerely hope that other artists can make a move, but I really can't expect that to happen. I did this because I had no choice in my heart. It is who I am. I am not censoring anyone. I am speaking my own truth. This is my point. Neil has no illusions. He knew right away that Spotify would back their $100 million investment. He just didn't want to be a part of it. He knew Spotify would never censor or remove Rogan from the platform. So all of this chatter about him, like, overplaying his hand is a load of horseshit. Neil wanted to leave Spotify probably before this whole thing even happened. But from the start here, Neil's goal was to simply get off Spotify, not censor Rogan. So don't kid yourselves on that. Because this is just another case of Neil pushing back at the powers that be, which is what Neil Young does. It's who he is. When this story first hit the news, I was reminded of a moment from a 2008 BBC documentary about Neil called Don't Be Denied. One of the people interviewed for the doc is James Taylor. And James Taylor said this about Neil. There's notes for you. Neil will will not have it he simply won't uh, have it he won't have a take a sponsor and and do that neil is known as uh, the ethical one you know the one who won't let business uh um uh kill him does neil's actions make a little bit more sense now if you know anything about him look back at his battles with david geffen or how he called out artists for doing beer commercials He's a guy who does what he thinks is right, no matter what the expense, the hassle, or the bad press, okay? He is the living embodiment of rock and roll. So I am on Team Neil all day, any day, on pretty much any issue. So go, Neil, fight the good fight. Also, Joe Rogan aside, 
Setting his show completely out of the conversation here. Spotify sucks. You know that, right? They treat artists horribly, and the audio quality of the music is really bad. Spotify is the worst way to enjoy music. Since we're celebrating Neil, we're going to play us out with Hey Hey, My My. Neil, take it away. Starship's third album is called Love Among the Cannibals, and it was released in August 1989. Now, at this point, Mickey was pretty unhappy that Grace left the band. So the name of the album, Love Among the Cannibals, is a bit of a dig at not just Grace, but all his former Jefferson Starship bandmates. In the book Got a Revolution, he's quoted as saying, The love generation was really a bunch of cannibals to me. And if you look at the lyrics to the title track, you will see that they are brutal, clearly directed at his former bandmates, calling them two-faced animals. <laughs> That's pretty wild, so let's take a listen to that. I heard you sing about love That was a long time ago I was one of the ones who believed But it's hard not to see Mickey's point, right? They were all about the peace and love in the 60s, but in the 80s, it was petty drama and lawsuits, lawsuits, lawsuits. So I get where he's coming from, at least. Now, the lead-off single from the album was unfortunately titled It's Not Enough. (laughs) And this is a rather appropriate phrase for the title, because it only hit number 12 on the charts, which was, pardon the pun, not enough for the expectations set by Starship's previous hits. But let's take a listen to it anyway. think this is a bad song i think it's a little adult contemporary it's kind of like soft rock but i think his performance here is good i think the pop production is still really accessible and enjoyable i like the song more than a number of tracks on the previous two records so i am not shitting on love amongst the cannibals i think there's some good work here now mickey was of course very frustrated that this record was really not much of a hit. Here's an interview he did in 2008 with Living Legends Music where he talks about said frustration. We decided we were going to continue on and we made this album that was my all-time favorite Starship album called Love Among the Cannibals that I thought uh, really touched a lot of cool musical bases I thought and really was a really true reflection of all the musical elements that were going on in the band but I guess at least in part because of the departure of Grace Slick, it just uh, it didn't happen. So that was a real disappointment. Another track off the album is called We Dream in Color. And I bring this up because it features audio clips 
of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech during the intro. And I guess he liked that song quite a bit because he re-released it as a single in 2014. But what does that remind you of? If you remember our Jefferson Starship episode, you might recall that I discussed a track called A Dream of Miracles off Paul Kantner's 2011 album Windowpane Collective Volume 2. This is a bizarre coincidence that both of these tracks feature audio clips from this speech. Uh, Sort of funny to think that Mickey Thomas beat the hippy-dippy Paul Kantner at utilizing that famous speech in his song. (laughs) But, you know, obviously this doesn't matter a whole lot. I just think this is a pretty insane coincidence. And like I said, Mickey really is proud of this song. On September 29th, 2021, Mickey responded to a tweet about Love Among the Cannibals, saying, quote, It's my favorite Starship album. My favorite cuts are We Dream in Color and The Burn. Now, I'm not as hot on We Dream in Color as Mickey is, but I definitely agree about The Burn. That is the opening track of the album, and I think it is very strong. Here, take a quick listen to Starship's The Burn. Unfortunately, Starship, much like the decade they were born out of, was about to come to a close. On September 24th, 1989, Mickey Thomas and his drummer Donnie Baldwin got in a brutal fight that left Mickey in the hospital. And Donnie out of the band. So while at Craig Chicaso's birthday, a drunken argument between these two got violent when Donnie attacked Mickey and beat him to a bloody pulp. (laughs) Mickey had broken ribs and needed reconstructive surgery with titanium plates and some 60 staples to repair his face. Okay, this is absolutely brutal. And also not the first instance, apparently. There are stories of Donnie getting physical with Mickey a few times before that, but not a beating like this was. Now, the band did not cooperate with police, so Donnie was never arrested for the attack, but he was fired. And Mickey has not seen Donnie since. Obviously, they did not reconcile. But Mickey has been vague about what started it in the interviews he's done since then. And as far as I can tell, Donnie has never even been asked about it. In 2012, Mickey said to the Marin Independent Journal, quote, It had to do with being on tour together for so many years in the crazy environment of the road. Being on the road is crazy enough without getting some other factors mixed in there, like resentment and alcohol and drugs. It was a very unfortunate incident that got out of hand. To say the least, right? Now, on a side note here, Donnie Baldwin is not out of work. He, of all bands, joined Paul Kantner's Jefferson Starship in 2008 and is still with them now, (laughs) which I got to say is a little crazy. But the main thing here is that this is actually just a really sad story because Donnie and Mickey joined the Jefferson Starship together and they were even bandmates back in the Elvin Bishop group days. 
They were friends. In the book God a Revolution, Mickey says, quote, So it's pretty hard to forget. I'm just afraid that if we were to see each other and try to be friends again, something would happen that would open the old wounds and we'd be at it again, and I don't want that. But boy, do I miss him. That last line emphasizes my point, that this sounds like a crazy drama story, but what it really is, is sad. Now on June 22nd, 2021, the official Twitter account for Starship tweeted, Happy birthday to Starship's drummer extraordinaire, Donnie Baldwin. You can't beat that hair. Come on, wish Donnie a happy birthday in the comments, along with a photo of Donnie with long hair. Now this is real bizarre because, like I said, Donnie is now in Jefferson Starship, not Starship. So what's with the Twitter account posting that of all things? Now, when I saw this tweet, I also saw that Mickey Thomas's Twitter account had responded to the tweet saying, quote, Yeah, you can't beat that hair, but Donnie could sure beat up on bandmates. <laughs> okay, so what's going on here? Obviously, something's a little finicky about the at Starship Twitter account. Now, about a month later, that same at Starship account tweeted a video labeled as Starship's cover of Don't Stop Believin'. And again, Mickey Thomas's Twitter responded saying, That's not Starship, boneheads. It's Mickey Thomas performing on a tribute album. Okay, so obviously something's a little weird with this Twitter situation, right? So I posted a tweet saying, It appears that Mickey Thomas's people do not run the at Starship social media pages. To which Mickey responded to me saying, quote, That is true. It's a bogus social media group run by a bunch of airheads. <laughs> and when you see their tweet about Donnie Baldwin... You can see why Mickey refers to them as airheads. So, <laughs> very weird. I don't have too much to say about that, except, I guess, follow at Starship Control or at Mickey Thomas instead of at Starship. So, the fight between Mickey and Donnie marked the end of the original Starship run. Mickey took some time off, healed up, and decided to relaunch a new band, calling it Starship Featuring Mickey Thomas. And this band would exist as a touring entity starting in 1992. And as a matter of coincidence, this is very close to around the time that Paul Kantner relaunched Jefferson Starship. Now, the new lineup of Starship did not produce any new music right away, but Mickey Thomas did eventually start putting out solo albums again. He released one called Over the Edge in 2004, and this record has a very contemporary for the mid-2000s kind of sound, and I gotta say, that is not my jam, so it didn't do a whole lot for me. There's a song on there called Turn Away, which is okay. And I will say that Mickey's voice is great, but I don't have a whole lot else to say about it because this genre of music just doesn't do a whole lot for me. Mickey Thomas's next solo album was called The Blues Masters, and that was released in 2010. And this is one of a huge number of blues albums put out by 
classic rock artists in their later era. I think Eric Clapton is probably the king of that little subgenre. And I only mention it at all because it was released the same year that Steve Miller put out Bingo, which was also (laughs) a blues covers record from a classic rock guy. And I have to say that Steve Miller's is better, despite Mickey being a better singer. Now, what's funny to me is that these albums both have covers of Rock Me Baby and Look on Yonder Wall. That's insane. Two albums released the same year from separate artists that cover two songs in common. I think that speaks to how disposable some of these late-era blues cover records from classic rock artists are. If you're interested, if you like that subgenre, well... Good for you, because there's a ton of those out there, and Mickey's is just another one. Mickey's next solo album was called Marauder, and it was released in 2011. This is another covers record, but it's not just blues. In fact, I would say what makes this album actually really good is the choices of songs. There's a pretty big variety here. There's multiple Beatles songs, but beyond that, variety is, I think, the album's strong suit. For one, it's not just oldies. He did songs by Oasis, Muse, Snow Patrol, and those are all surprisingly good. Although I will say he added a guest rapper on his cover of Life is a Highway, and that was uh, not great. (laughs) But what I see when I look at this album is that Mickey knows good music, and I think this is actually a really strong cover record. He picks a couple of songs that work particularly well with his vocal stylings, Um, specifically Tempted and Sledgehammer, I think were really good picks for him. And the one that impressed me the most is he did a cover of Russ Ballard's Voices. Now that's a deep cut in and of itself, but he also nails it. So I'm going to play a clip of that song. Here's Mickey Thomas singing Voices which was originally written by Russ Ballard. Now, for whatever reason, Mickey decided his next album would actually be a Starship record. Loveless Fascination was released in September 2013. The album was produced by Jeff Pilson, formerly of Dokken, now of Foreigner. And I think this was a big-time collaboration between Jeff and Mickey. Uh, Jeff wrote most of the songs. He produced it. Obviously, there was something about Jeff's work that appealed to Mickey. Now, I hate to say it, I don't really like this album. And I think that's primarily because of Jeff Pilson and not Mickey, because my problems are with the production. It's very dreary. I think it's trying to go for a modern, heavy production. When I listened to it, I felt it was a bit of a slog. I also felt that it was a missed opportunity to only have one duet on the album. I actually think duets are a strong suit of Mickey's, and I wish he did more of that here. Stephanie sang with Mickey on a song called Nothing Can Keep Me From You, which is the last song in the album, and it was written by hit songwriter Diane Warren. That's 
kind of the only one I like, and I, again, think it's because my problems with the record are mostly Jeff Pilsen related. I guess I'm just not a fan of his production work. Now, I talked to Stephanie about this album. She told me that Mickey was happy with the end result of the record, but very discouraged by the sales. And because of that, there's probably not likely going to be another Starship album in the future. When we talked about it, Stephanie said that self-promotion is not a strong suit of Mickey's or the band's as it exists today. And some evidence of that would be that this album is not available on the band's website or any streaming services. And the label that the album was released on appears to be defunct, as the last social media post I could find was from November 2018. If you want to hear the album, you got to buy a used copy or find whatever you can on YouTube, because it's not out there like the original Starship stuff is. Frankly, that's a failing on behalf of the band. Making your music available for fans should be a priority of any band, even if it didn't sell well initially. So real quick, let's talk about the current status of Starship featuring Mickey Thomas. Well, there's been a bit more drama. Mickey fired Stephanie Calvert in October 2021 because she was not vaccinated against COVID-19, and she caught COVID-19 before they were about to start a European tour, and that put her availability into question, and Mickey had a problem with that, so he found a new singer and has stuck with her since. Now, Stephanie did not get the vaccine against COVID, not out of ideological reasons, but because of medical issues. She has a medical condition. She posted on her Facebook. She had talked with her doctor about getting the vaccine, and she was advised not to do it. So this is kind of a gray area here. But she told me she thinks the real reason they fired her was more due to personality differences. She thinks the vaccine situation is just the reason they gave her. And if you want to hear more about that, again, check out my upcoming interview with Stephanie where we'll get much more into it. The new female lead singer that took over from Stephanie is a woman named Sian Cowie. So if you're curious about seeing Starship live, they are still performing, and I believe they will for the foreseeable future. Time for another break. So now we're going to go to a segment that takes a look back at some of the biggest events in classic rock history from 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years ago. This is a segment called Back in Time. So Huey Lewis, take us back in time. Is this a 50s or 1999? years ago, March 18th, 1972, Neil Young scores his only number one hit, Heart of Gold. Hey, we're celebrating Neil Young today. Got it? <laughs> and all I'll say about this track is that it is absolutely beautiful, and it is unfortunate that it was knocked out of the top spot by a similarly produced but god-awful song which you might know called A Horse With No Name by the band America. 
Love Heart of Gold. Can't stand Horse with No Name, but whatever. Let's move on. March 5th, 1982. Actor John Belushi dies from a drug overdose. So the story is Belushi had relapsed after a brief period of sobriety. You can learn about his story from the 1984 book Wired, The Short Life and Fast Times of John Belushi, which was written by Bob Woodward. And I bring this up because Belushi is mostly known for being an actor, but his work with the Blues Brothers is legitimately good music. And much like Dan Aykroyd, I think he should be considered a rather talented blues performer. Obviously, given his drug appetites, he ran in the same circles as a lot of our favorite classic rock guys. In particular for today, Joe Walsh. He was very good friends with Joe Walsh. And instead of focusing on the sad details of how John passed away, I'm going to share a story about John from his buddy, Joe Walsh. This is a clip taken from the History of the Eagles documentary. Take a listen. In Chicago, here's what happened. There was a knock on the door and in walked John Bellucci. John wanted to show me the finer restaurants of Chicago. So we went to the restaurant and they wouldn't let us in because we had jeans. And he got the maitre d' up to like $300 bribe and still they would not let us in. And John said, I know what to do, I know what to do. And the next thing I knew, we were standing in the alley and he spray painted my jeans black and then it made me do his. And we went back and we got in. We were sitting in these Queen Anne period chairs that had needlepoint. And when we stood up, that was all black. And the butts of our pants were jeans again. So we had to kind of back out of there and leave fast. Okay, later that same month, March 19th. 1982, guitarist Randy Rhodes dies in a plane crash. So Randy Rhodes was the guitarist for Ozzy Osbourne in Ozzy's solo career. And the story here is that Ozzy's band had to make a stop at a place called the Flying Baron Estates to make some repairs on their tour bus. And while most of the band, including Ozzy and bassist Rudy Sarzo, slept... The bus driver, a guy named Andrew Acock, jumped into one of the planes on the runway at this place without permission and flew around for a bit. He landed and then convinced Randy to come on board, despite Randy's fear of flying. They took off again, and after being in the air for about five minutes, one of the plane's wings clipped the top of the tour bus, which broke the wing into two parts and sent the plane spiraling out of control crashing and killing everyone on board. This happened because the pilot, who was high on cocaine, thought it would be funny to buzz the bus and scare everyone inside. Basically, he wanted to fly the plane super close to the bus so it would, like, shake the windows or, like, the wheel would tap the roof of the bus or something. Something that would scare the daylights out of everybody in the bus but not hurt anyone. Well, I'm sorry, but that's a really stupid fucking idea. And it had absolutely disastrous results, killing not just Randy and this guy Acock, but also a makeup artist for the band. It's the epitome of the old idiom, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And it's just so unfortunate that Acock had to drag 
two people along with him on this uh, moronic idea because uh, the music world absolutely got worse after that day. All right, moving forward a couple of decades. March 5th, 2002. Sticking with Ozzy Osbourne. The Osbournes debut on MTV. Now, this was the first and also most famous of the many god-awful reality TV shows that were centered around aging rock stars, okay? There was Gene Simmons' Family Jewels, Rock of Love with Bret Michaels, Growing Up Twisted with Dee Snyder, and most recently, Real Money with Eddie Money. And the Osbournes didn't accomplish a whole lot except for making Ozzy look like a doddering old fool. And I gotta say... If that's an accurate portrayal, fine. But really, who wanted to see that? You know what I mean? This is legend killing, not legend making. And I think that combined with the other slew of garbage reality trash means that this show just has an awful legacy. UltimateClassicRock.com posted an article about this show recently, and they found a quote from Ozzy looking back on the show saying, quote, we invented a new form of television. We started the ball rolling for all these fucking new shows now. Would we do it again? I don't know. I don't think so. Easy to say now. All right. Let's get back to the main story. Me, I'll be back in time. Gotta get back in time. Okay. Final segment. We've covered the Starship story. I just want to touch very briefly on Marty Ballin in the 21st century. We talked about his earlier solo career from the 80s and 90s in the past two episodes about the Jefferson Airplane family tree. So this segment here is about Marty's solo career post-2000. Marty played with the Jefferson Airplane for a couple of years in the early 2000s, but he left the band in 2008. And he left the band because Paul's idea for the next Jefferson Airplane album was that Jefferson's Tree of Liberty album, which was like a big protest project. And Marty wanted to do something a little more in the vein of what they used to do as Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. And he just wasn't interested in Paul's idea. And he also had some personal stuff going on in his family life. So he really wasn't available for the whole band thing. So he focused on his solo career, which he could do more on his schedule. One of which was an album called The Nashville Sessions, which was released in 2008. Now, I have to say, most of the music from this album is not available online because this wasn't released on a label. He released it himself. And unfortunately, there are several lost recordings of Marty from this era because he wasn't on a label and there wasn't a lot of interest in his solo career from really anybody at this point. But to his credit, he still was producing music. Now, from what I have heard, his vocals are still strong on this Nashville Sessions, and it seems like a decent record, again, from what's available on YouTube. Here's one of those songs. A year later, Marty released another album called Time for Every Season in 2009. There was an earlier version of this released on CD back in 2003. So I think this was an attempt to corral some of his sort of lost recordings into a proper studio CD. 
And I would describe this as a light but upbeat kind of album. These are very simple but uh, still enjoyable tunes. And his vocals are still very good. So here, take a listen to a track. This is called Rockin' Blues. make any grand statements but this is very chill and i would say a really cool sort of project for an artist at this stage in their career a year later he put out an album called blue highway in 2010 and this one sort of went the other way as far as production goes because this has a much bigger and louder production than the last two records in fact i would say maybe even a little overproduced it's got a big band sort of sound which is okay for a while, but eventually it started to wear on me. And I can't say I love the record as a whole. Also, there are some recycled tracks here, i.e. some songs he produced on previous albums that are also here. That's something I've talked about in previous episodes. Marty has done this his entire solo career. And for most people, that's not a big problem at all. But if you're researching a guy's discography for a podcast, that can get a little frustrating. (laughs) Now, I will give him some big credit on this album because he did a cover of Bruce Cockburn's If I Had a Rocket Launcher. And if you're not familiar with this song, this has got to be one of the angriest protest songs that I've ever heard. And I got to say, it's a real appropriate choice for a cover given Marty's Jefferson Airplane history. And when I heard this cover, my first thought was, I'm really surprised that Paul Kantner had never covered it on one of his albums, because this is totally a Paul Kantner type of song. But you know what? I can't say it like that because Marty's the one who covered it. So here, take a listen to Marty Ballon's cover of If I Had a Rocket Launcher, which was originally written by Bruce Cockburn. Yeah, that's a pretty good song. That's a great late-era Jefferson Airplane-adjacent protest song. So if you're looking for more protest music from a Jefferson Airplane-adjacent project, look no further. A couple years later, Marty put out an album called Good Memories in 2015. This was billed as celebrating 50 years of Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Starship. Now, the lead-off track of the album is an original song, and it's written as an ode to his airplane days. So, here, take a listen. Once a really nice tribute to his former bandmates and i'm glad a song like this exists because the jefferson airplane as an entity i think deserves to be celebrated in song so it was very cool to see marty do that now as far as the rest of the album goes it's all re-recordings from his old songs from his time with jefferson airplane jefferson starship not particularly interesting but you know some updated production 
you can see where his vocals are at this point of his career. Obviously, some people like these kind of projects because classic rock artists do them all the time. And I think it was at least partially produced to promote an upcoming album of new material he had on the way. That album would be called The Greatest Love. It was released in 2016, and it was his final release before he passed away. Now, unfortunately, I can't be very complimentary about it because it's not my favorite of Marty's work. There's a lot of shouting for the vocals here, and although the production is sort of sparse, it's also very loud, which makes it kind of abrasive to me. So this record of this late era is one that doesn't quite hit the mark for me. There's a song on here called Jamaican Me Crazy, and when I was listening to it, I thought to myself, you know, maybe a guy like Jimmy Buffett could get away with a song title like that. But here, it's pretty lame. Marty's not really that guy. He's never presented himself as that guy. So, you know, having a goofy song with a title like that, just it just didn't click for me. It's not a bad album. It's just not the one I would pick from this era of Marty's career to listen to if given a choice. Marty passed away on September 27th, 2018. And it's worth noting that his voice, his vocals were very strong up until the end. And also to his credit, he was very prolific in these last years. So I think Jefferson Airplane fans, Jefferson Starship fans, should really appreciate that he was still putting in that work this late into his career, just like Paul Kantner was. So there's no shortage of newer material that old school Jefferson Airplane fans should enjoy. And there's some of that right here in Marty's late era discography. So wrapping up here, I'll tell you about the only time I ever saw Starship in concert. I saw them at the Washington County Fair in 2010. This is in West Bend, Wisconsin. They were on a bill with Dennis DeYoung and Kenny Loggins. They opened the show and they had a very short set list. The only Starship songs they played were the three number one hits, Built This City, Sarah, and Nothing's Gonna Stop Us. Everything else were tracks originally recorded by Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. What I remember from the performance is that the vocals from both Mickey and Stephanie Calvert were very good. Despite it being broad daylight and pretty early in the day because they had two bands following them, the crowd that was there was absolutely into what they were doing, and there was a positive response. And to compliment Stephanie specifically, I will say what I like the most about her performance is that her vocals were very powerful, like Grace's were, but Stephanie did not try to mimic Grace's mannerisms, and she did more of her own thing, and I think that's really important for anyone that would try to step in for Grace Slick. Nobody can be Grace Slick, right? So don't try. Sing her songs but do them in a way that's best for your talents. And I think that's what Stephanie did, and I think that's why I really enjoyed the show. And once again, just a reminder, my next episode of Play That Rock and Roll will be an interview with former Starship vocalist Stephanie Calvert. Okay, just my final thoughts here. Like we said at the start of the show, Starship gets a bad rap, and I don't think that's fair. They made some great... 80s pop rock, even beyond their hits. 
Each of the original three albums has some really good deep cuts, so 80s rock fans should absolutely give this band another look. The only negative thing I'll say is that it's just too bad about that last album, Loveless Fascination. I think maybe with a different producer, maybe with a different collaborator, they could have put together something a bit more appealing because Mickey's voice is still strong. They could still do a new album, and I think it would be pretty good. Because, again, Mickey can still sing very well, but he just needs to pick the right collaborator. And for me, Jeff Pilsen isn't that guy. But that's just me. Maybe it'll play differently for you. And on that point, one main takeaway is that Mickey Thomas is a damn good singer. He is seriously underrated. And like I was saying, he still sings great to this day. So if you want to see him in concert, you're not going to be let down. Mickey can still perform at a high level even today. So hats off to Mickey for that. And then finally about Marty. So I gotta say, Marty Balin is much more interesting than I realized. I didn't know a whole lot about him when I started this project, but I gotta say, I am a fan now. His vocals stayed strong all the way to the end of his career. And his solo albums reflect a lot of what he had done in the Jefferson Airplane and Jefferson Starship. So if you like Marty Balin songs from Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship, then you should really check out some of his solo records. If you're unhappy with what the Jefferson Starship became with Mickey Thomas, or if you don't like Starship, check out Marty's solo career. Because that captures a lot of the same sounds and vibes and songwriting from his era in the previous two bands. All right, that's all I've got today. So looking ahead, like I said, our next episode is going to be an interview with former Starship vocalist Stephanie Calvert that will conclude our series here on the Jefferson Airplane Family Tree. After that, we will have episodes about Ronnie Spector and Wang Chung. And then at some point in the near future... I'll be getting together with my buddy Chris for our sixth and final part of our Dylan Through the Decades mini-series, which will be Bob Dylan in the 2010s. So keep an eye out for that. The intro song for this show is I Can Play That Rock and Roll by Joe Walsh. That's where we get the name of the show from. And of course, I have to say thank you to Jack Hughes from Wang Chung for recording that little intro clip we played at the start. Otherwise, I have to recommend and cite the books Got a Revolution by Jeff Tamarkin and also Somebody to Love by Grace Slick. And to play us out, here's a song from the Starship discography that celebrates rock and roll itself. What else would it be? We built this city on rock and roll. Take it away. We built this city Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this, that means you did that one already. Thank you. Your time is valuable, and there is an infinite amount of content out there. So you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, 
please recommend the show to family, friends, or anyone you know looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in subreddits, Facebook groups, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. Lots of great supplemental material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal because it gives me something I can point to when pitching the show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chances I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here on this show. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.